So let's begin in a moment. Let yourself be seated. Over the course of this <clears throat> this winter, starting in January and in the month of February as well, begun a series of uh, teachings going back to the very basics of the Buddhist uh, first um, offerings of the path to liberation or freedom entitled The Eightfold Path of Practice. And so last week we started The Eightfold Path of Practice um, by speaking about its first step, which is wise understanding. This path being one that leads us through spiritual life, but equally is the path of everyday life, of how to turn the life, the human life that we've been given, um, into the path of awakening. And tonight I'd like to speak about the second step on this noble eightfold path as it's traditionally referred to. And this second step is called right attitude or wise attitude. When we began last week and spoke about wise understanding for those who were not here, wise understanding had whoever wishes to practice in a spiritual life look directly at this human realm to see the possibilities on one hand of great suffering that human beings can create through greed, hatred, delusion, and also the possibilities of liberation and compassion to look directly at our human experience. Now the second step of this teachings of the Eightfold Path, uh, which is again wise attitude or sometimes it's called wise thought, begins with the acknowledgement that the mind is central to all that happens to us, that the states of mind and heart create so many things. In fact, most of our life is run by the habitual patterns of mind and heart. But if we look at our human experience, whether it is the roads that we drive on, the buildings that we live in, the patterns of speech that we use to communicate, the forms of agriculture that grow the food that, that we humans use to grow the food that we eat, the kind of relationships that we have to one another, they're all determined by our thoughts and our minds. Somebody pictured putting a certain building in San Francisco that had a pyramid shape. That was an idea in someone's mind and then they drew the picture and then convinced a whole lot of other people to go along with that idea, and then gradually there ended up to be that Transamerica Pyramid building. Um, And in fact, most of the things of our world, our human world, come first out of the vision of the mind. And so the beginning step in this path is to see the power of the mind and the heart, and look, this beginning step of this right thought or wise attitude, is to look directly at the mind. Now it also happens that today is the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. 
And so in the spirit of that birthday, hopefully um, fitting together with this teaching, I'd like to offer some of his words. Um, First beginning with a story that is not uh, Dr. King's, but from the Buddhist tradition. It seems that the attendant to the Buddha, whose name was Ananda, um, walking through a dry part of India, came to a village well, and there saw a young woman who was uh, named Pakati. And Pakati was a member of the untouchables, or the outcast, the lowest caste in India. And he went over to her and he said, Excuse me, could I please have uh, water for a drink? And Pakati looked at him and said, Oh, venerable monk, I am too humbly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am what is called an untouchable. And Ananda, who was known for his kindness anyway, looked back at Pakati and said simply, I did not ask for your caste, but for water, please. And in that moment, it transformed her life. She saw herself in a different way. She became so joyful that someone would look at her with that attitude and that spirit. I didn't ask what your caste was, but please, could you help me? It's like when Mother Teresa visited San Quentin Prison some years ago. And before she left, the prisoners and the people inside asked if there's anything that they could do for her work kind of a little bit of a reversal. And she said, yes, very much. I ask, would you please pray for me? What a beautiful thing to ask of them. And a very genuine one on her part. So here is Ananda and Pakati at the well. And Pakati then became so inspired, she followed Ananda. And in some versions of the story, it said, fell in love with him. And then the Buddha sat down with her and said, it is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness, his respect. And if you live your life with that same kindness and respect, you will carry the nobility of a princess or a queen on this earth. Now it happens, since it is Martin Luther King's birthday as well, that we um, have to acknowledge that um, those teachings uh, at the well have not yet been learned very well on this earth. And the Buddha, when asked about this, said that one is noble not by birth or caste or by race or by class or by creed, but nobility only arises from the integrity and beauty of the heart of a being. And still in our own culture, because the wound of racism is so great and deep, really one of the central wounds of Western society, um, there are so many people who look at another person who looks different and whether consciously or unconsciously are afraid of them or look down on them or are taught to distrust them or misunderstand us one another. Not just here, but worldwide. So if we are to live the teachings of the Buddha, we have to be able to see one another and ourselves in a new way. And the start is with the mind, our own attitude. The mind or the heart is the forerunner of all things, says the Buddha. Or Rabindranath Tagore, 
who puts it, most people believe their mind to be a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, and not realizing, on the contrary, the fact that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. How we think and believe our attitudes and thoughts create how our life will be and how the world will respond to us. So what are our most common attitudes inside? What do we believe in, our beliefs? Is our attitude and spirit one of being in a hurry all the time? I go for that myself once in a while. More than that, my teenage daughter would tell you. She's here not just once in a while, Dad. Hurrying to get through. Is our attitude possessiveness, consumerism? I mean, that's what we're being sold. Is our attitude a struggle to survive? Have to fight our way through life? Or me first? Is our attitude fearful? Or is our attitude trusting? Is it one of judgment or one of mercy? Is it one of foolishness or of wisdom? Is our spirit one of unworthiness? What is the spirit and attitude we bring generally to this human experience? I was just in Florida and I was driving uh, my daughter and mother-in-law somewhere nearby and passed this big, tattoo parlor, and on the door there was a sign that said, no alcohol, no drugs, no attitudes. Right? So what is our attitude? Hmm? Is it ambition? You know, or struggle? Is life a bummer and you kind of just have to suffer through it? Or is our attitude one of creativity and possibility? Is it one of service? How can I be of service to this life? So we begin to examine what we bring. Because in a certain way we're free. Nelson Mandela put it this way. He said, we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free. We have the outward freedom. But what about this freedom in the heart? And is our freedom connected to the freedom of others? Again from Dr. King. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Not only is it amazing poetry, but it's the most wonderful Dharma teachings. Wise thought, wise attitude, we begin to look at what we believe and then discover the possibility that satisfaction and happiness come from the state of the heart and mind that we bring to this life. And begin to discover the power of kindness, the joy in not grasping, the delight in generosity, the ease in letting go, the immediacy of freedom and liberation that is here in every moment. Again from the Buddha. 
There is no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like the hunger of the heart, and no joy like freedom. Health, contentment, true understanding are your greatest possessions, and freedom is your greatest joy. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among those who are troubled. Live in joy without grasping like the shining ones. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. This quality of wise attitude is sometimes also called wise aspiration of the heart. And that aspiration is connected with the Buddhist tradition of the bodhisattva, that is, of the path that we undertake to serve and bring liberation and compassion, not just to ourselves, but to all living beings everywhere the Bodhisattva path, again from Martin Luther King, undertaking our life with this perspective. The nonviolent path of love does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something more radical to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they had. And finally, finally it reaches their opponent and so stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. He goes on, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in this world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. Wise aspiration or attitude. Now sometimes it's said that it helps to clarify our spirit or attitude by reflecting on death. As Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, without death, life would be trivial, ordinary. Only because death is stalking us is life a mystery. It all seems so real. I mean, all the friends and family and possessions and work and all the identities that we make of ourselves, who we are and what we do and how we're supposed to be, And then we die. And guess what happens to all that stuff? Your possessions, your work, you know, your community, all those things that you take to be yours, your body, your identity. It's gone. And it really, really happens. It's amazing. (laughs) Who, moi? Who do we think we are? Or how long do we think we have? 
What matters in the light of death, then, if we know that life will end in this form? As Tara Tulku, a wonderful Tibetan teacher, said, it seems like people are interested in spiritual practice, but then they say, well, I can't afford the time to do it, or I don't have the money to practice or to serve others. You know, it's, it's I've got to make the time. I, it's a good idea. I'm going to get to it, you know. But you sleep eight hours a day, you eat for two or three hours, you work, you, you know, get your money, you drive all the time. How many hours do you spend doing all that? And how many moments on enlightenment? How many moments on cultivating awakening or compassion? Rumi, poet, puts it this way in his poem called Set Your Heart on Gold. Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. Are you waiting for it to be different? (laughs) This is a great description of life, isn't it? Just that. Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. Are you waiting for it to be different? Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there is no death worse than expectancy. Set your heart on cold, hard cash if you are not counterfeit, and listen to my advice. What sprouts up every spring will wither by autumn, but the rose garden of love needs no special season. Plant your seeds there. The Timeless Stephen Levine, I remember when we were teaching together, he said, it's kind of one of his famous inquiries, he said, if you were going to die soon and had only one phone call you could make, who would you call? What would you say? And why are you waiting? What then is this wise thought or wise attitude? First of all, it is that spirit that in the face of any circumstances, those circumstances can be used to cultivate the possibility of awakening. It takes whatever life gives us and said, this is grist for the mill, this is the place where I can awaken. I can awaken the mind to see clearly. I can awaken the heart. It's also said that right or wise attitude, wise thought, is thoughts free of possessiveness, of jealousy, of cruelty, of delusion. So these two parts, to take what comes to us and use it for awakening, and to be free of harm to other beings. What this means first is an attitude or a spirit of openness, to see what's true, to learn from what is in front of us. And this is what the Buddha said over and over, don't believe my words, test them. Use these teachings to examine your own life the way you relate to others, the way you relate to your own body and mind and feelings and thoughts. And find those things that lead 
to ease, to peace, to liberation, to freedom of the heart immediately and directly and follow them. And those that don't abandon them. Do not call a thing good or bad because you've heard it to be so, but examine what is really good and bad in your own experience. Otherwise, without this inquiry, this attitude or spirit of openness, spiritual life just becomes kind of a rote following. Well, they say to do it, or this is what you do. And I know people who've done a lot of meditation, and they kind of heard how you do it, and they just sit and they go along and do it, and there's probably some benefit. You get a little bit peaceful from it, but not very much learning. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, I've seen chickens sit on their nests for, you know, days on end. I'm not sure they've learned much, and I wonder about some of my monks in the same spirit. In India, they use an ox to uh, draw to um, draw water um, from a well or from a canal, and they have a kind of water wheel. But and the ox walks around in a circle. But for the oxen to do it. It only goes around when it's blinded in some way. And if you take the blinders off, the ox won't do it. Even the ox, even an ox, gets the point after a while. Right? There's something similar about our lives. You know, we go through patterns over and over, and what right attitude is, is to take the blinders off, to give ourselves the time to look, what is this life I'm living? What is true and what is false about it? What is really good? What is it time to let go of? To really time to let go of now. Lao Tzu puts it this way. A good traveler has no fixed plans. You know why? Because the airplane's always late. <laughs> Isn't it? A good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent upon arriving. A good artist lets their intuition lead them wherever it wants. A good scientist has freed themselves of concepts and keeps their mind open to what is to be discovered. Thus the master is available to all people and doesn't reject a one. She is ready to use all situations and doesn't waste anything. This is called embodying the truth. What is a good man but a bad man's teacher. And what is a bad man but a good man's job? If you don't understand this, you'll get really lost, however intelligent you think you are. Wherever you go, this is the great secret. One psychologist put it this way. He said that there are really only two modes of our being when we interact with one another. One mode is protection and defense, where you try to protect yourself and be right and not get hurt and make sure that you know, things go the way you want. You know that mode? And the other mode, the opposite, is the mode in which we are interested to learn. Instead of saying, this is how I think it should be and how you are and how I am, all of that defensiveness or protectedness It is the openness to learn what is the lesson here. What is your experience? What is new about this? 
What is it like for you? I've never been in this exact situation before. Tell me about it. Gandhi put it this way. He said, Even with my most difficult opponents, I am always looking for the slightest pretext to compromise. Even in the most difficult situation, I'm trying to find some new way. Now think about it for yourself for a moment. Reflect. Think about a recent difficult time, a hard time you passed through. What attitude did you bring to that? Without any judgment, just looking honestly. And what were the lessons from that difficult time that you did or could have learned? Can reverse the reflection. Think about a wonderful time you've had recently. What were the attitude you brought to that? Spirit. And what are the lessons that that has to teach? It's not the goal of the Eightfold Path or spiritual life to perfect yourself or to change the universe, both of which seem to be unsuccessful tasks. It's the goal to see the way things are and to know them with the heart of compassion, to see the truth and find compassion for the way things are. And then they change out of that compassion in their own way. The first duty of love, said Paul Tillich, the first duty of love is simple. It is to listen. And it is the truth, it is knowing what's true that brings our freedom. We don't get free by making ourselves free. The goal in meditation and spiritual life isn't to get rid of thought, you know, or not have any more fear, or get rid of your personality, which you don't like, or get rid of your problems, as if anyone could do that. The goal is to be where we are and see it truthfully. Oh, there's this, there's suffering, and there's pleasure, there's joy, and there's pain, there's light and dark. This is the way it is. And then to work with that, to open the heart, to bring freedom, to be free right there. It is seeing what's true that brings us freedom. Now, there was a study that was done in one um, by a psychologist at a hospital in Illinois, um, which was a a psychiatric hospital, mental hospital. And um, it happened that the road going to the hospital was a a, a tollway. um, And the exit near the hospital, because it was a long road, they had some booths where people would collect the tolls. But then for, for smaller side roads, they had those little machines where you threw coins in for your passage on that part of the road. And so one of the psychologists at the hospital mounted a little video camera by the gate there um, 
as a, as a part of an experiment to see who paid their toll and who didn't among the hospital staff. <laughs> Not out of judgment, but the comparison that he was interested to make, he then um, he particularly looked at the therapists, the psychologists, the social workers, the psychiatrists, um, and then he compared who paid their tolls and who didn't to the success rates of their work in therapy. And one of the key findings, a statistical, statistically significant finding, was that the therapists who paid their tolls, their patients got better <laughs> much more frequently than the ones who didn't. Isn't that interesting? That's right attitude. A kind of openness, because we don't know what's going to happen. Does anybody know what's going to happen tomorrow? Raise your hand, please. This from the novelist Storm Jameson. There is only one world, the world pressing against you at this minute. There's only one minute in which you are alive, the minute here and now. The only way to live is by accepting each minute as an un- unrepeatable miracle. There's only one world, the world pressing against you at this minute. So the spirit of wise attitude is an openness to be with what is actually here now, to take this as the place of practice. Again from Martin Luther King, the worst of all tragedies is not to die young, but to live until 75 and yet not ever truly have lived. Now this kind of openness grows out of respect for what we don't know, the mystery of another person. And you think you know somebody? They'll be different. They will, I assure you. (laughs) Isaac Newton described himself, he said, I feel like I'm, I'm a child sitting on the shores of a great ocean. What I've discovered is so small, and what there is to know is like the vast ocean. Zen master Suzuki Roshi calls it beginner's mind. The goal of practice is to keep beginner's mind, to meet your lover, your parent, your child, as if you hadn't seen them for a long, long time. How are you? What's happening for you? What, who are you? Not just how are you. Or people ask, you know, what do you do? And probably the wisest answer would be, when? <laughs> Zen master Sansanim calls it don't know mind. I don't know. Who are you? I don't know. What is your mind? I don't know. What is consciousness? Don't know. Why were you born? Don't know. What is gravity? Don't know. What is light? Don't know. Oh, good. You keep don't know. It's good Zen practice. It's that spirit that has faith that there's more to learn in life, this mystery. So that's the first part of right attitude, wise attitude and openness. The second is this attitude of respect that Martin Luther King talked about so much. Respect for what's in front of us, 
Remember that last week I talked about the little doors that you find in some of these temples? These tiny little doors you have to go through. And they're so small because they want you to bow before you get into the temple to get yourself down to the earth, to kind of reduce the sense of who we are so that we can see anew. Whether it's your family or the change of seasons, this cool, cold winter night. You know, the the people that we work with, everything thrives on respect. There's such a beauty that comes when we bring the quality of respect to our co-workers, our gardens, the rainforest, our children, our plants and animals. A story. God decided to become visible one day and chose two people to see him or her, a king and a peasant, and sent first an angel, you know, a little emissary, to inform them of this blessed event. The angel arrived in court and announced, O king, God has deigned to be revealed to you and will be revealed in whatever form you choose. What would you like as the way for God to appear? And seated on his throne, surrounded by all the you know, court, the king proclaimed, how else would I wish to see God save in majesty and power? Show us God in the full glory of his or her being. And so God granted his wish and appeared as a flash of lightning so vast that it instantly pulverized the king and his court and nothing, not even a cinder remained. That's how the story goes. Got to be careful here. The angel then manifested herself to a peasant, saying, God deigns to be revealed to you in whatever manner you desire. How would you wish to see God? Ah, Taking his breath and pausing for a time, the peasant finally said, I am a poor man and not worthy to see God face to face. But if if it is God's will to be revealed to me, Let it be in those things with which I am familiar. Let me see God in the earth I plow, in the water I drink, in the food I eat. Let me see God in the faces of my neighbors and my family. And God granted this wish, and the peasant lived a long and happy life. And may such a wish be granted to you as well. You can hear how the ground of this wise attitude is really not so much the mind, but it's the heart. And in Asia, the word for mind and heart, it's the same word, jitta, heart-mind. But when you ask about the mind, whoops, they always point here, not to the microphone either, someplace a little below it, underneath there. What do you think? Or Someone will point, well, I'm, I'm thinking about it. They think here. So the attitude of openness, to learn, discovery, to see what's true. The attitude of respect for whatever we meet. And then thirdly, the attitude or the spirit of compassion for the sorrows that we share, as well as the beauty. There's so much suffering that is a part of human existence that's woven in as deeply as the exquisite and beautiful and 
majestic, so too is the tragic. That birth and death and light and dark and joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain are the warp and weft of life. They cannot be separated. There's so much struggle that human beings have created in life. How do we treat this suffering? How do we relate to the sorrow of life? Again, Martin Luther King. He says, always be sure that even in your struggles, you use the weapons of love. Never succumb to the temptation to become bitter. If you succumb to the temptations of bitterness or violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of the heart. And he goes on. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Returning violence for violence or hatred for hatred multiplies the violence, adds to the hatred, deepens the darkness of a night already devoid of stars. Hate cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do so. The truth is, if we undertake a spiritual path, and most of us are finding our own way, brailing our own way along our spiritual path, that it requires a tremendous amount of compassion and loving kindness if we are to open and if we are to awaken. Otherwise, it's impossible. Reflect about it for a moment. That place of the greatest pain in yourself, of the greatest fear, of the greatest jealousy or attachment or anger. Think about those pains not just in yourself, but in your closest friends. The greatest pain or jealousy or anger Or think about those places of enormous pain in our society or on this earth. What spirit of attention would be needed to allow those to open in you or in a loved one or in this, on this society or in this earth where there's so much struggle and hatred? If there is the slightest judgment, the slightest resistance, the slightest aversion or grasping to the pain or the struggle or the fear in us, it stays locked in. It doesn't even show itself, really. If you you feel your fear, and the idea is really to get rid of it. If you feel your pain and the idea is not to really have it there, but get it to move, somehow go away if you feel something in yourself that you don't want to really look at, 
it will never open. If the slightest judgment is there, it stays bound in us. Anybody who's meditated for a little while finds this truth. What is required in our body and heart is the same in the society and the world around us. It is only through mercy, through the kindness of compassion, that reconciliation happens, that what's locked in suffering begins to grow and and breathe new life. For a lot of years, we used to teach loving-kindness meditation at retreats. Um, Just at the end, when we first started, we just mostly do mindfulness and insight meditation. At the end, we do a little bit of metta to kind of close the retreat on the last of ten days for a half an hour or something like that. But it's changed a lot over the years. And now it seems, if anything, that the ground of the retreats that we teach is the compassionate heart. And without that ground, nothing else will really open. And it won't open in our communities and between peoples. I remember meeting a Tibetan nun who had escaped over the Himalayas from being imprisoned in Tibet and she was practicing in a monastery in India in Bodh Gaya. And you know, if you go to Bodh Gaya, the seat of the Buddha's enlightenment, to go and meditate, it's a very inspiring place. There are all these kinds of temples. The Japanese built a beautiful temple, and the Koreans, and the Tibetans, and the Chinese, and the Thais, and so forth. But actually, if you think of it as a nice, you know, peaceful spot to go and meditate, especially some of the older and most venerated temples there, it's quite the opposite. There's a Buddhist text that describes the ten faults of a monastery where one should not undertake deep meditation practice. And that is if it's near the market, or by a road, or by a well where people gather, or where the animals are kept, or where there are lots of travelers and tourists, or, you know, and whatever faults you could imagine, and where it's dusty and dirty and difficult to breathe and not refreshed in the air. Bodhgaya, all of these things. where it's too hot, or where it's too cold, or too noisy. And I was talking to this nun, and she said she felt so grateful to be there. This, what a place to practice, what an opportunity. What a, there she was sitting in this temple by the road, and the ox carts were going by, and the, the Indian taxis were honking their horns, and the dust was in the air, and you know, the people were on their way to market, and she was just grinning, saying, God, what a gift to be given this place to practice. What a spirit. Meister Eckhart put it this way. He said, the only pr- if the only prayer you say in your life is thank you, that would be enough. The spirit of compassion is really to take what is there, what is given to us, and hold it with kindness, whatever it happens to be. So how are we conducting our spiritual life? This is what this quality of wise or right attitude asks of us. Do we bring an openness of heart to learn? Do we bring respect? Do we bring compassion? Alan Watts puts it this way, 
The art of living is neither careless drifting on the one hand, nor fearful clinging to the past on the other. It consists in being completely sensitive to each moment, in regarding it utterly new and unique, and having the mind and the heart open and truly receptive. If we bring that spirit, what is the lesson? What is just here to learn from? What is there to open to? And how can I use this circumstance, this person, this difficulty, this work, this opportunity, how can I use this to discover the great heart of compassion? How can I use this to discover the freedom of this Buddha nature that is within me me and all beings? Then this wise spirit or wise attitude will really serve you. No matter what it is, it can be transformed in the heart. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, the tears I spilled yesterday have now become rain. Even the difficulties, the tears I spilled yesterday have now become rain. The great miracle of spiritual life is the change of heart. The thought becomes action. The action develops into habit. The habit hardens into character. The character shapes our life. So guard the ways of thought with care and let every one of them spring from deep loving kindness for all beings. Let's sit. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled, says the Buddha. Live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy without grasping like the shining ones. Look within, be still. Free from fear and grasping, know the sweet joy of living in the way. So a few brief announcements and then we'll do a chant for a while and go out into the winter evening. Um, On the last Monday of January, in uh, two more weeks, we're going to take up a collection that we didn't do in December for the 
soup kitchen and the homeless in our area to feed them, and a little bit for the uh, Insight Spirit Rock Prison Project as well. So, um, let's see, this is, we did right understanding or wise understanding, wise attitude, then we'll do wise speech and wise action. That's right, last Monday of January, bring lots of money. <laughs> we'll also talk about generosity that night, so that will help you. Um, let's see. What else to say? Um, be really careful as you leave um, driving in the dark because it's so many people it's, uh, and a few people walk. Um, so you have to be real uh, sensitive to that. And also it's a good meditative practice once you get in your car to not immediately speed off somewhere. <laughs> Take your time. There'll be time for that later. Um, two more things. I just received uh, the news that... Um, Ed Van Tassel, who is also a Tibetan Lama named Lama Kunga, who teaches up in Sebastopol, died last night of leukemia. He'd been in India and got sick and came back. And I'd like us actually to do, when we chant, a kind of loving-kindness chant for, for him and for anyone you know that is ill or for any parts of the earth that you feel you wish to reflect and offer your heart's compassion and loving-kindness for their peace and well-being. Also, for those of you who know Durga May, who cooks here, she has a beautiful baby, Jessie, so you can add little Jessie and Durga May into your loving kindness. Anyone else you wish? So the chant. Um, I think we'll do Om Mani Padme Hum, which is the chant of compassion that is particularly... Um, recited throughout the Himalayan regions of Asia. Um, Om is the universal sound. Mani means the jewel. And Padma is the lotus. So it means literally the jewel is in the lotus. And Hum is a kind of exclamation that's kind of emphasis. Um, And it has many, many meanings, but one very simple meaning is that Mani refers to the jewel of the mind and Padma is the lotus of the heart. So the, the clarity or the jewel-like nature of the mind uh, rests in the compassion of the heart. And this is the expression of our awakened nature. Um, and what's beautiful is that whenever you chant Om Mani Padme Hung, you join your voice with others because there are people chanting Om Mani Padme Hung day and night in the monasteries of Tibet and Nepal and India and various other places at the temples in Bodh Gaya. There are people doing their hundred thousand or their million prostrations and Om Mani Padme Hung all day and all night long. So when you give voice to it, it joins all these other beings. Also, it's carved into the rocks and written on the walls of the monasteries. It's the graffiti, I like to say, and it's true. You know, if you see things spray-painted on the walls in the Himalayas, it's Om Mani Padme Hum. Imagine if we had graffiti like that. You know, bless all beings. It's graffiti on Muni or something like that, Bart. So we will chant Om Mani Padme Hum for a little bit, for a while, and as you do, again, just reminder of that spirit, of your own Buddha nature that you can bring, wise attitude of your own true nature to this life and offer your compassion to those around the world. Oh.
filled with blessings and may your heart find the spirit of great compassion and openness and freedom wherever you go thank you Good night